0: Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is Episode 7, The Tour Guide from Hell, a conversation with Philip Hutchison. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas in the USA. Joining me today, as always, is Howard Brown from Philadelphia. Hi, Howard.
1: Hi, John. Good to be here again.
0: Good to have you back. And Mike Covell is in Hull in the UK. Hi, Mike. Hi, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. And with us also, of course, is Robert McLaughlin. He's in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jonathan. And as I just mentioned, our special guest today is Philip Hutchison, and he is in Guilford. Hi, Philip.
2: Oh, hi, Jonathan.
0: Are you in Guilford today?
2: I am. I'm speaking at Guildford, Surrey, England right now.
0: All right, right on. I got that right. I didn't ask you at the beginning. But anyway, uh, Philip Hutchison is an actor, author, researcher, historian, collector, and photographer, Um, most known um, in the world of ripperology for being the um, tour guide, Richard Jones' Discovery Tour Company for the London Jack the Ripper Walks. And Philip... um, if you could just explain to us, when did your interest in the Jack the Ripper case first start?
2: Well, I always had a kind of childhood interest in, in the dark and macabre. I think my interest in, in uh, true crime and murder probably began with a visit to Madame Tussauds when I was six years old. Um, for some reason, the Chamber of Horrors freaked out my mum big time. But I, I seem to be... Uh, Awe-struck by these uh, figures in Victorian clothing, black clothes, gl- gazing out from uh, open coffins down there, and uh, that seemed to pique my appeal. Uh, consequently, from that, I always had an interest in, in uh, dark and unpleasant things, you know, Dracula and all the kind of gothic stories. Uh, charming child. Um, and in 1988, on the centenary of the murders, there was a, a BBC uh, documentary on the Black Museum at the time when Bill Waddell was still the curator there. Uh, it was an hour long program, um, and it had a feature It was topped and tailed with with the ripper primarily they were, they were focusing on the uh, the return of the, of the autopsy shots the previous year. Um, and I found that very interesting, and, and the, the interest in, in true crime grew from that. And then in uh, early 1990, I acquired uh, Brian Lane's Murder Guide to London, and I spent the summer of 1990, ever uh, I, I had a free day off college, I'd take a train up to London, like so many people who live in the UK are interested in the case of Dunn. And I'd spend the entire day with the, with the book, just walking around various murder sites through history. Um, not taking photographs, not making videos, not making notes, just uh, almost like a train spotter in a way. I'll go after these places, I'd look around them, I'd go off get a train or a tube train to somewhere else and look at another one. And as far as, as far as The Ripper goes, at the time I had no particular interest in that. My my main interest in murderers at the time was, was the really extreme ones. I've always been fascinated by people who could be mass murderers and then live with the results of their crimes in their houses. Uh, I guess in, in the States, the primary case of that would be someone like Gacy. But, but in England, of course, we had uh, John Christie, the, the murderer at Rillington Place, who murdered all these women, and including his own wife, and stuck them under the floorboards and buried them in the gardens. For me, that was because it's so alien. It's, it's such a Thing. So at the time that was the kind of thing I was interested in. Uh, but the interest with the Ripper itself grew uh, starting about 1998. I spent a year working as one of the actors at uh, the London Dungeon, which uh, although a very interesting place to work and certainly a hugely enjoyable job, uh, it doesn't exactly have a basis in fact. Um, it used to wind me up with things I had to tell people I knew for a fact weren't true. But consequently from that, that's really where the Ripper interest itself really grew. The first Ripper book I obtained was, uh, unfortunately, I have to say, The Diary in, in 1993. Um, I'd seen the Michael Winner documentary, and I got The Diary for Christmas that year. And, of course, like everybody else, with the first book they obtain, you believe it all until you start finding other books, and then you find out that that actually isn't the case at
3: all.
0: Um, when did you become involved in... in um and discovery tours and, and conducting tours through the east end of, uh, on the Jack the River Walk.
2: Right, well, in the UK we have uh, an actor's classified newspaper, it's called The Stage. It's it's the equivalent of, uh, of a variety paper in, in the US. Um, and they had an advertisement in there one week for a company I used to work for some years ago and they were advertising for actors who uh, had an interest in Jack the Ripper who wanted to be tour guides. Uh, I thought this sounds great, I'll, I'll obviously never get the job cause I never do seem to get the ones I'm most suited for but uh, I went along for the interview and they actually gave me the job on the spot. Um, so I spent a, a few years actually tour guiding for a different company, doing tours primarily on coaches. They'd be picked up from hotels in London, taken around uh, the Ripper sites, then they'd be taken for a meal afterwards. But uh, the working conditions for that company were really bad. I first ran into Richard Jones in 2000. We were both guests on an episode of uh, Kilroy. Kilroy, um, he would like to have thought of himself as Donahue, but uh, he really wasn't that at all. Kilroy is a very strange gentleman who hosted a, a talk show um, in in the uk for, for many years and uh, in the end he got exposed for being a bit strange and setting things up and, and the show was axed but there was, a, there was a, show, a show on ghosts and because richard and myself are both involved with and indeed as mike is involved with paranormal studies as well um i was on there as a member of the ghost club the oldest paranormal society in the world and richard was there because he's an author on on ghost books and that's how i m- first met him um being a council member of the ghost club it's my job to book speakers uh, to give lectures for the group and uh, knowing richard worked in london having run into him before i contacted him through his company website and he agreed to speak for the uh, for the group and then when we actually saw each other face to face we realized who each other was because i've been guiding around the east end doing repertoires already for a couple of years by then seeing richard all the time and him seeing me but not knowing who the other person was and consequently from that he invited me to start working for him
0: um, when you first interviewed uh, for the, your first job on, on the Jack the Ripper tour, uh, was it almost more like an acting audition? Or, I mean, what, what is an interview for a, a, a Jack the Ripper walk tour guide like?
2: That's, yeah, that's an interesting question now. Um, let's think about this. Was, this was some years ago. It was just in an office. There was certainly no acting involved. I do recall he needed to ask me a lot of questions about my interest, about, um, about my acting credentials as, as such, you know, what, what work I've done in the past. Um, about how I felt about the work, about the conditions that were offered. Primarily in itself, the audition was he took three of us on as guides at the same time. The other two left very shortly afterwards. I stayed on working for them. But uh, one night, the guy who ran the company actually took all of us out in a car, took us to the East End, <coughs> and he watched each one of us delivering a set piece at a different location. And from that, that, that really was kind of our audition. It was, it was him and the other guides that were auditioning, watching the third person um, giving, giving a talk at one of the motor sites as if they were guiding it. Uh, I'd hate to have seen the sort of thing I did then and compare it to what I do now. It would be, be quite remarkable.
0: So so it was almost like a, a competition between uh, you and, and other applicants. Um, um in a sense of rivalry not in a sense of
2: um you know something to do like donald trump's program where you where you find out that if you don't do it well enough you're not going to get employed we were all up for the job he had other people that had turned down but we were the three he wanted to take on board this was a kind of test to make sure that he was making the right decision huh. i guess if one of us not measured up then he wouldn't have offered us a job and he'd try to find somebody else well
0: wow, that's pretty interesting
4: um, <laughs> hi, uh, regarding tours uh fella, this is robert uh Uh, Do you know offhand how many different tour companies operate Jack the Ripper Tour in the East End? Uh, Bob
2: Hinton did some research on uh, the the whole genre of dark tourism. He sent me the paper some years ago. Um, At the time he did it, uh, I believe there was something like 60 guides doing Jack the Ripper Tours um, who were employed to do the job at any one time. I, I guess there's possibly about a dozen Ripper Tours running every single night. Even the company I work for, we can sometimes have five different groups out at the same time with different guys for the same company. It's a massive industry.
1: Wow. Wow. Phil, I have a couple questions for you, if you don't mind. It's Howard. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. Um, How many people per year do you think that you um, conduct tours for? Ballpark estimates.
2: Okay, this is going to call for some rudimentary mathematics. Usually on the tour, I take about thirty-five people in a group. Uh, Richard Jones' company—they they limit the amount of people they'll have in any one group because, like some of the others, they'll take everybody who turns up. Um, is that but this
1: daily? We have, is that a daily right,
2: uh, well, I don't do them every, every single day. I do two, three, four a week. It depends how often I, um, I'm needed or booked for. But obviously the, the tours run every single day, as, as do the ones for, for Richard's company. Um, but they limit the amount they take. You can only book in advance. Some of the groups, they just have everyone that turns up, and you end up having you know 150 people in a group. You can't see or hear the guide, and you certainly can't get down the dark alleyways, which is the places that you really want to see because there's too many people. Right. um so uh, if I do uh, on average of about three a week 35 people in each group so you say about a hundred people a week um, um, I, I guess I guess yeah probably about 5,000 people a year yeah
1: wow do you ever give the people um, uh, do you give the people a little bit of background to the history of Whitechapel and Spitalfields during your tours Oh, absolutely is it prim- okay is it, I thought no. perhaps it was primarily ripper related.
2: No, I I do, I I call them, um, before I actually take them off to do the tour and start visiting the sites, I take them round, uh, depending on on what sort of route they want. Sometimes we start off in Mitre Square, sometimes I start uh, at the top of uh, Gunthorpe Street, Uh, both of them sort of equidistant from from the starting place, in front of Allgate East Tube Station. Um, And I tell them I'm giving them a pre-Gore lecture. Uh, which lasts about 10-50 minutes speaking about the the social conditions of the East End Uh, not about the development of it but certainly about the conditions for for the London poor
1: Okay, I I have one more before somebody else can take over here Uh, do you think that some of the tourists uh, the Americans and uh, Europeans perhaps uh, do, do you think that they get involved with Ripperology as a result of going on tour with you?
2: I think it's possible. Um, at the end of the tours, I always get people asking for, the, uh, for details on getting the book. Now, sometimes I guess that could just be you know, a, a flash-in-the-pan moment that they've decided they've <laughs> done the tour, I'm interested, but then they find out the next day they couldn't care less about it again. Um, I've, I mean, it would be difficult for me to judge as a rule if somebody's gained an interest in Ripperology through having done the tour, because obviously once they've done the tour, they're complete strangers, they've left my life. Uh, there's been one or two occasions where someone's been on the tour, and I found out a few months later they've, they've joined Casebook. Um, yeah. so, so I guess it does happen sometimes.
1: Uh, that's good.
4: Well, and, thanks, Tom. Uh, no. f- and, uh, Philip, uh, generally, uh, where do you go on the tour? What sites do you include on, on, on your Ripper tour? And what sites are excluded?
2: Right. Uh, good question. Uh, you'll always find uh, everybody who's familiar with, uh, with the layout of the locations. Uh, I don't think there's any tour as such that uh, tends to visit uh, Henrique Street and um, uh, Durwood Street. Because, because they're too far away. The thing with doing tour guiding, uh, walking a long distance is fine, but you've got to have places to stop en route. And really, both those locations are a good 10 to 15 minutes, with, with a group of people, 15 minutes walk easily from any other place where we are with nowhere to stop en route. So it would be ridiculous to stop there. So those two sites are left out. When I'm covering um, Polly Nichols' murder, um, we generally stop outside the, the Shiraz in Brick Lane, of course, which used to be the frying pan. Um, but for, as far as Liz Stride goes, uh, th- there's nowhere relevant we can really stop to tell her story. So I tell her story just before we enter Mitre Square. Uh, the walking route I take really depends on where the group needs to finish. Um, but the route I took for, for many years, which is, is changing a little now, I would walk people from, from Allgate East down the length of Whitechapel High Street and Allgate High Street, and I would start the tour in Mitre Square. From there, I proceed on to uh, St. Botos Church. Obviously, commonly known as the Prostitutes' Church. They would pass under the boundary between the city and Whitechapel. Uh, I'd mention uh, Edo's arrest uh, outside you know, twenty-nine, the mysterious 29 Oldgate High Street. Then we move up through Gunthorpe Street to tell Martha Tabram's story. Stop outside what we colloquially call the, the Flower and Dean Estate to mention uh, about how bad the estate was, and that's where the Doss houses were. Onto Goulston Street. Uh, for the apron and uh, and the graffito then straight up to the service road that used to be dorset street Uh, then stopping outside christchurch Spitalfields, cover the 10 bells and the tour frequently finishes uh, outside where 29 hanbury street used to be
4: and typically how long does a tour last
2: about an hour 45 minutes. But that depends on the speed of the people on it. If I've got a load of school kids, they tend to walk pretty quickly. If I've got a load of old people, as I actually took last night, as, a, as a, almost entirely a group of, uh, of pensioners on a coach last night, and you, know, you feel I've got to go into clinical detail about evisceration here, so you don't know if you're going to get some sadistic pleasure out of telling that. But obviously they tend to walk a lot slower, and the tour last night took over two hours.
4: So that would be the
1: Howard Brown tour, right? Okay. <laughs> I remember
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> Are Mike Covell and Hole in the UK?
3: Yeah, I mean, Philip, being on the front line when carrying out your task, does it surprise you? Just does it surprise you just how popular the case is 120 years later?
2: I think the case possibly would have started to die out slightly had it not been for the case that, that the industry itself seems to have promoted what it does. Um, people now always come on a Ripper tour thinking they're doing something different and I I'd, I'd tell them uh, no everybody does it <laughs> next to v- probably visiting the Tower of London or going on the London Eye or something is possibly one of the most popular tourism things to do because it's deemed to be different but it's not it's now part of the establishment um, I think that the Johnny Depp movie from hell um, certainly played a big part in, in regenerating the industry. Um, we've not had any tail off the years I've been doing it that the numbers get more and more every year and the amount of tours I'm doing now a, a far exceeds the amount I was doing when I first started. I could sometimes yeah. go weeks on end without the company booking me for a single walk. This is the company I used to work for. But I'm getting Richard's company phoning me you know, almost on a daily basis now, putting new dates in my diary. I'd, I did seven walks in five days a couple of weeks ago.
3: Wow. Um Whilst you're out there uh, in the thick of it, have you heard any amusing stories or theories from people on the walk or passers-by?
2: Ah, great one um, it's going to give me a chance to tell you my favourite ever anecdote but I'll come to that in a moment um, people on the street uh, we, I, there was a nice one some years back um, obviously there is a bit of an issue in the east end you get, you get the problem with, with the teenage what we, what we call hoodies in, in, in the UK uh, some of the disaffected youth um, are always like shouting abuse but you've got to be street wise you just avoid them if there's a group of them hanging around you walk off down the street and you tell people why you didn't stop there which uh, encourages their interest even more and until them about it elsewhere um a couple of tour guides haven't done that they've gone yelling about the ripper in front of the teenagers and in 2006 two particular tour guys actually ended up hospitalized a result of uh, <laughs> yelling about the ripper in, in, in front of these uh, these local yobs
1: um, wasn't that uh, deluxe leader got jumped
2: yes couldn't happen to a nicer man <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a personal opinion um so, yeah certainly he, he was he was one of them um, but i 'm not going to go into detail about about mr Deloxley's background it 's it's, it's there for people to find out if, if they if they want to. I could probably add up for some kind of libel case if I told you everything I knew about him. Um, but, yes, he, he certainly was, was one of them. But, you know, you, you don't hang around where there's groups of teenagers who are just lazing around, leaning against walls, waiting for trouble, because you're exactly the kind of thing they're waiting for. Um, there was, a, there was a, a fun one many years ago when there was di- four different tour groups standing in Mitre Square. That's an absolute magnet. For some reason, all the tour groups are in Mitre Square at any one time. And this guy came through the square, and he standing in the middle, and he screamed to every group, you're all wrong, it didn't happen here, it happened over there in Whitechapel. I think, okay, you're right. Everybody else is wrong. Uh, once outside the Ten Bells, we heard this bell ring, and a guy was uh, riding through the group on his bicycle, totally stark naked. That was quite fun. <laughs> uh, my favorite story, or as far as theories from the people on the tour go, they've all heard the populist stuff. The Americans always ask me about Patty Cornwall. The English always ask me about uh, Gull and Clarence. Uh, because they've all, all they've heard about is Stephen Knight. Though yesterday I met a wonderful lady who said she first got interested in The Ripper in, in the 60s, and she told me the first book she ever bought was Tom Cullen's Autumn of Terror. And I thought, good for you, somebody who's actually done something for once, instead of you know people just hearing roughly about it. I, I make sure that people find out the truth about the, these ridiculous suspects at the end. I do cover that. My favourite anecdote ever... Uh, At the start of the tour, I I mentioned about uh, Charles Booth's descriptive map of London poverty, and I point out the fact that he just took a London street map and he painted the streets blue or black, you know, or different colours, depending on on what their social status was. I had a guy on the tour once um, run up to me when we were walking between sites, and he he asked me, (coughs) quote, weren't these people pissed off this guy was coming around with a paintbrush and painting the front of all their houses? He'd actually assumed that, that Charles Beef himself <laughs> was walking around every single house in London and painting, without the owner's permission, the whole frontage of every house in a different color, depending on how rich he thought they were. It's a great
0: <laughs> Do you find that you get um, people going on your tours multiple times? I mean, do you have, like, Ripper Tour groupies? Th- th- it did happen um, I wouldn't know this unless people came up and told
2: me you know if you-, you see as-, as we just worked out 5,000 people a year um, that would be a bit freaky if I remember people but sometimes people have come up to me and told me they- they've been before the one I do recall strongly when I worked for the last company there was a couple came in it either two or three times who came over from the states each year um, they came on it because I was, I was doing the tour and I do remember the uh, the guy out of the couple he actually worked at the hospital where Jeffrey Dahmer's body was taken after he was killed in his cell and he told me he saw the corpse and he told me in detail about the fact that there was virtually nothing left of his head. Uh, so that's one of those things. If someone tells you that kind of thing, you remember them when they come back again. I've certainly had people been on the tour who've taken my email address and, and stayed in touch with me. I'm actually in uh, email contact with, with several people who've been on my tours uh, years ago. I just only met them one evening, but we're now, you know, we send emails to each other And as you're
0: walking down the street, um, what, what would happen if a person uh, tried to just join along in, in the group? In. I mean do you, you think or uh,
2: Sure, it doesn't really happen, you know. It's it's I can't recall a time when I've ever had to a, you know, spot a straggler and tell them to go if someone hangs around for half a story just listening to a bit, I don't have an issue with that you class that as like some kind of advertisement but if they're trying to catch on the tour when everybody else is on it, you try to make a joke out of it, you try to make them feel uncomfortable you actually, before you start telling the next story you'll actually gesture towards them and say ladies and gentlemen, this man has not paid boo him, and everybody will turn to him and boo him and stuff, and it will be lighthearted. but then if they, you know, usually they'll go then if they don't go, then then really there's something wrong with that person, and they're not somebody that you're going to uh, confront. So you just let it ride.
4: <laughs> and now, hey, Phil, now, Phil uh, London is famous for uh, its weather, um, and I know tourists go out when it's raining and whatnot. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, does it add to the atmosphere, like the rain and the gloom and the the darkness setting in? Does does all of that make it an, a more interesting experience for the people on the mm. tour?
2: My favourite environment for doing the tours is starting the tour about 15 minutes after it's been raining. By that time, the streets are deserted of people. Nobody's going to be out because they've gone inside because of the rain. And uh, the streets are empty and they're quiet and uh, the street lamps and the moon are reflected in the cobbles of the back streets. That is perfect. I have to do the tour in any kind of weather. Last night it was blowing a gale and it was pouring down with rain and uh, everybody looked really miserable, and everybody got soaking wet. Um, But there's nothing you can do. If there's a small group, and it's clearly atrocious weather, you then offer them alternatives. You say, look, do you want to come and do this here? I can actually take you into a pub somewhere. We can carry it on there. Generally, if the rain is very heavy, I've got alternative stopping points. For example, when we get to where Dorset Street is, uh, as I'm sure many people know, White's Row multi-storey car park has been built right next to it. Now, where the service road where Dorset Street was, there is actually an an overhanging park where cars can park underneath. And so if it's pouring down with rain, I'll point out the location of the Mary Kelly murder, but I'll take them actually undercover. Um, so, so there are alternatives for most of the spots. When it gets to something like Annie Chapman's murder site, um, that there's no cover at all, and uh, you're going to get wet. But people expect that, you know. People, people wouldn't book this kind of thing if, if they thought they were going to be you know, covered <laughs> over all the time.
1: Phil, do people ever interrupt you while you're explaining something uh, uh, related to the case during a tour and cause you to lose your train of thought?
2: Oh, no, of course. good questions. It's a nice one, Howard. Um, no, they don't. It's happened once or twice, and I really hate it. Some guides are perfectly happy with that. But uh, being an actor by profession, everything I say on the tour, all the jokes, all the pauses, the nuances, they're hardwired in my brain. And I'll throw in uh, other things occasionally. You know, if, if, if they're needed, if I feel the occasion calls for it. But if I was in the middle of doing something and somebody suddenly interrupted me mid-sentence, I've always equated it to reading a book and somebody calling your name and you looking up and not putting your finger on where you were. You've got to think through it all again to find where you were. So that's an issue, but um, it really very, very rarely happens. I tend to speak without pausing when I'm doing the tours, which doesn't give people a chance to butt in. And I think I do it that way deliberately.
1: Well, well, has any <laughs> has anyone ever tried to show you up while you're doing a tour by trying to do your job instead of you know keeping quiet and try to a- uh, correct something that you say?
2: Absolutely never. It has never ever happened, and this is almost my entire raison d'être for doing what I do on the tours. For me, it is. Extremely important to ensure that what I tell people I know for a fact to be true. If I don't know something to be true, I'll say we don't know it's true. If I can't take people to a location, I will tell them exactly where that location is. I won't try and bluff them by saying Uh something that I know isn't true because I'm scared that one day somebody might do that and they'd be Uh valid by doing that and I would then look, um, you know, I'd lose my credibility.
1: Okay, so in other words, you never expand on your personal theories or on. And speculation on aspects during your tours, you just stick to the uh, tangible and the concrete, correct? I, w-
2: I will often say many of us think, or many people think, but I would never actually uh, really put my cards on the table until it actually comes to, to dealing with suspects at the end. But because I, I go along with, with the theory of the anonymous local man, uh, I've got a really easy answer to that one.
0: How has your um, tour changed over the years? Um, uh, as far as uh, pinpointing the exact locations of uh, the murder sites, in particular Mary Kelly's. And, um, and I mean, uh, your knowledge of the case has evolved, I would assume, uh, since you started the Ripper tour. How, so how, how have you fashioned your, your tour based on your evolving in, uh, knowledge of the case?
2: Certainly. Well, the, the walking route has, um, as I said, we, well, I have two routes now, really, depending on what they want. But, but the first route I took, I still do that very same route. Uh, things like jokes and gags, sometimes something will just strike me when I'm doing it, and it'll work or it won't work. If it works, I'll keep it in. If it, if it doesn't, I won't. Information on the locales, certainly that's changed. When I started doing the tours, the only book I, I had that I'd recommend to anybody to read was, was Eddleston's uh, Encyclopedia, which even now we know it does, does have a certain amount of errors in it. And consequently, as a result, I was making errors on the tour when I first did it. Um, when you find out the truth, you, you change it. Uh, I'm particularly grateful to people like Colin Roberts and, and Robert Kleck uh, for knowing them over, over the time I've known them, for getting the absolute locations pinpointed within inches. Uh, it's very important to me. I like to have that as a kind of selling point for my tours. I won't say to somebody, this is a rough area. I will stand exactly where something happened if I can. And that, that has a kind of resonance for people who, who are, are watching it.
0: And so let's hear um, some of your your tour, if you so so uh, humorous here. Um, let's, uh, let's hear what you would say um, if, as if we were a, a tour group entering meter square.
2: Okay, if I, if I cover meter square, this is going to be an interesting one because I'm going to be saying things like over here and over there, so you have to really use your imaginations. Right, we're now standing in Mitre Square. Mitre Square today is very different to how it looked in 1888. The only thing that exists from that time is the shape of the square. Even most of the cobbles have been replaced. Beyond that, it's changed entirely beyond recognition. Firstly, it was very dark in here at night. There was only three dim gas lamps. One out in Mitre Street, shining no light in here at all. One over in that far corner. And there was a third one. Where you see the row of black bollards on the other side, there was a third one there. That big open alleyway, St. James's Passage today, was in 1888 called Church Passage. And it was little more than a metre wide from where the modern wall is up to where you see the first bollard. Mitre Square was surrounded on all four sides by tall buildings. Williams and Company had a warehouse out there. Horner and Company had a warehouse down that side. Where I'm standing was the back of an empty house facing onto Mitre Street. Next to that was uh, a picture fr- the back of a picture framing shop owned by Mr. Taylor. One family lived in Mitre Square, the family of PC Richard Pierce. They lived at number three. That's just over there where the brown shutters are today. Next to that was an empty house and occupying the rest of Mitre Square. Up the rest of that side... All the way along the far side were sets of warehouses owned by a famous London company from the time called Keeley and Tong. Keeley and Tong were still trading until the 1950s. They sold tea, spices and sweeties. And the only man who'd be awake in Mitre Square at night time was the night watchman of Keeley and Tong, a retired police officer called George Morris. That's pretty much what I'd do to introduce Mitre Square to them. And they'd have their brains frazzled already by then so I could tell them anything I wanted and they'd fall for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a hell of a presentation, Phil.
4: All no, I shouldn't see what I do in my arms.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> do we owe you 12 quid now for that? Yeah, damn right, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you'll have to, to PayPal to it, right? We've got the same bank charges over here.
0: <laughs> now, Mike Covell and Holt, would you like to uh, chime in here?
3: Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, being that Richard Jones is your boss and author of such books as Walking haunted London and uncovering Jack the Ripper's London, how much has he inspired your work both on your tour um, and of course your book? Well
2: I've never actually been on, this is actually true I've just realised I've never been on anybody else's Ripper tour ever. I've seen bits of other guides doing theirs when I pass them with my group, but I have actually never done a Jack the Ripper tour myself, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Um, Richard's a kind of inspiration to me in the sense not as not as a tour guide, although you know, as, he's very successful and, he, and he's admired by a lot of people, so that's a kind of inspiration in itself, but um, he kind of inspires me in the fact that um, although he's my boss, he phones me up occasionally to, to discuss aspects, he's got to do some research, and um, he, he values my opinion, he values me as a researcher, he values me as an employee, and uh, Richard and and the company I work for for him, that they actually treat me very well. Um, so he's a kind of inspiration in that sense, and really, that's really why I, I, my dedication in in the, the the book, The Londoner Jack the Ripper, was was to him. I'm such a sycophant. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Are you um, aware if Richard Jones actually has your a copy of your book?
2: Oh, he certainly does. I sent him a copy. Yeah, yeah, he got a freebie <laughs> from me. <Yeah. laughs> Well, I got a freebie of his. It's reciprocal.
3: <laughs>
4: uh, now, Phil, uh, the Jack the Ripper tour is not the only tour you do. You also do uh, tours in Guilford as well. Am I correct? That's right, yeah, I run, I run ghost tours in
2: Guildford, which uh, I started doing in, in 2001. Uh, but that's, that's entirely my own business. That has nothing to do nothing to do with, with anybody else. Um, again, that's my own script, and um, I do that differently. That, that is done in costume, and it's done with a kind of personality. When I first started doing the Ripper tours, I did actually do them in, in character. I'd dress up in Victorian costume. Thankfully, not Gentleman Jack. I'd, I'd go around... More like Bert the Chimney Sweep for Mary Poppins, to be honest. But I called my character George, <laughs> what with my surname being Hutchinson, and that's really why the moniker George Hutchinson has stuck on casebook. Um So I used, to, I used to do the Ripper tours in, in character. It'd be kind of affecting a Cockney accent and being really abusive to everybody all evening. And, and the Ghost tours are actually done in costume where, where I, I am, I'm unpleasant. I'm, I'm kind of sinister and, uh, and sneering and, and not very friendly. Um, but then the evening goes on, it, it progresses to just uh, surreality, really. <laughs>
4: Now, what what sort of changes, uh, since you've been visiting the East, and uh, I guess you said around 1990, uh, you know, have you seen, I mean, we've seen a lot of the ripper sites change, we've seen historic buildings being torn down from modern ones, uh, I'd like to get your opinion and views on that.
2: Sure, I I hate it happening. I really hate it. Um, I went once round, I I I had my camcorder with me and I never filmed it and I'm kicking myself to this day I didn't. I went round old Montague Street when the old houses were being demolished around there before they put up the, the, the houses that have just been standing there for about a decade or so. And I was watching the houses being demolished, and I watched it for half an hour, and I had my camcorder with me, and I never filmed it. I'm, sorry, I, I'm really angry about that. But every time doing the tours, we just had um, the demolition of, of three old Victorian buildings that face the entrance to Gunthorpe Street and the White Hart, which is on the corner of Whitechapel High Street and, and Lehman Street. And it was extremely evocative. One of them even had the old um, the painted livery on, on, on the front of the building, you know, with the number, and, and the businesses used to be there. And they've just knocked them down because they're, uh, they're putting a new kind of contraflow traffic system into that corner. So that's a great loss. I've seen the demolition of uh, the wall that went up on Gunthorpe Street shortly after the Tabram murder. There's now a big building standing there. The East End is always being pulled up. The cobbles are being ripped up from the roads because they're replacing the Victorian sewage and water mains um obviously being 100 years old that they've that they've worn out so uh, the east end all the time at the moment is, is covered with uh, with scaffolding and with barriers and with massive holes in the road all over the place the holes in the road are fine because they're going to get re- repaired and you're not going to see much difference but the building's coming down uh, upsets me greatly but no, you know what can i do
4: is uh, some of this brought on by the olympics of 2012 or is that unrelated is it
2: As far as I'm aware, it's entirely unrelated. Um, Maybe it's been exacerbated by that situation. Certainly around Allgate East tube station, there's massive regeneration going on of the tube station itself. There's even been a a theory put forward that they're going to scrap the name Allgate East and replace it with the name Brick Lane. Um, I don't know if they're ever going to really go along with that. I did feel at one time, I'd, I'd heard these stories about they were going to start ripping down bits of Hanbury Street to do with the Olympics, but I, I think the information was wrong. There's something to do with a new train link, which is uh, in theory going to be established at some point. I don't know if that has anything to do with the Olympics, but th- there has been ideas that certain parts of the Ripper area... Uh, will be lost as a result. I've also heard a theory that the entire area of Whites Road Car Park and the Spitalfields Fruit Exchange next door and consequently the service road uh, that links them, which is obviously the, the, the site of the buildings on Dorset Street, is going to be entirely wiped out and replaced with a massive building. But uh, at the moment, I believe it's just theoretical. But of course, th- this is going to be you know, a, a complete anathema to, to the, the tourism industry.
1: Uh, I was just going to ask you about that, Phil. Considering I'm uh, doing a little math over here, uh, low-end estimate, you got up w- close to a quarter of a million people that go on these tours in, in the East End a year if you multiply the 60 tour groups times 5,000. You're talking low-end, 200,000 people a year. You would think that the city council would try to, you know, renovate renovate the area, preserve the area, rather, without tearing it down. It's a shame.
2: You would think so, but but the, the interests of the local populace seem to take precedence. Uh, there's obviously, as you know, an interesting mix around the East End now. Uh, the Jewish East End has pretty much entirely disappeared. It's, it's, uh, it's very much uh, the, the, the Asian East End. That, that's, that's the British Asian East East End. Uh, the, the Bangladeshi, the Pakistani, the Indian communities all around the East End now, certainly around Brick Lane, um, Now, that group is starting to to dissipate elsewhere and is largely being replaced by the nouveau riche who are moving in from having made their money in the city of London. Certainly the areas around Princelet Street, Wilk Street, the back streets near to Hanbury Street and off the Commercial Street area are now getting uh, quite upmarket as, as a result. Um, and I have a feeling that a lot of these people have no interest in tatty old buildings. If they've got an old building there, they want it to be beautiful. And if it can't be beautiful, then get rid of it and put something nice and modern and shiny up in its place. The locals have no interest in history. They're just residents.
0: Are there any uh, local preservation societies? I mean, doesn't the Whitechapel Society um, uh, have some some kind of uh, operation to try to preserve some of these old buildings, or is it just um, a lost cause at this point?
2: Sure. Well, I'm, I'm the MC for the Whitechapel Society, but I'm, I'm not privy to anything that the, uh, the committee of, of the group actually does, because I just, I just introduced the, the meetings when they happen every two months. Um, we don't have any clout as such. I, certainly there was an example last year. A woman actually lived on the houses that have been built along Durwood Street, very close to the murder spot, and she came along to a meeting to, to let us know that there were plans afoot to change the parking spot and the, uh, the flowerbed area that marks the spot of Polly Nichols' murder again I don't think anything's actually been done there but, but she came to inform us but we didn't really have the power to do anything there are local pressure groups um, the, the case booker who goes by the name of Anna sent me a, a private email recently speaking about um, something that may be able to be done to, to save the buildings which have now been lost outside Gunthorpe Street um, but I, I'm not certainly have no involvement with any of those groups myself, I, I'm not a London resident and, um, and consequently you know, my, my sojourns to London are basically pretty much just go up there work, do the tour and, and go home again so I, I don't have any involvement with any kind of pressure group that there is Th- they must exist but I'm not aware of the names of any
1: hmm. so have, have any go ahead Mike go ahead. yeah go ahead Mike
3: um, Ripper Ghosts have become almost a business within a business um, in 1999 the International Society for Paranormal Research did an investigation into Ripper Ghosts This was followed by Most Haunted in 2005 where they did a Halloween special um, investigating Jack the Ripper. Then they followed that in Series 6 with an investigation in London Dungeon where Derek Okora picked up on James Maybrick and an assailant, um, but he never gave a name. Then in 2007, um, the Transatlantic Paranormal Society um, conducted a short walking tour of the murder sites, but never really did any investigation. Um, what are your views on um, the Ripper ghosts?
2: There's been a lot of stories come out. The majority of the stories uh, are sourced back to the uh, the authors Elliot O'Donnell and later Peter Underwood. Both men were, were or are, very famous in their field for... Um, for their stories and and their frequent books. I mean, both of them have published a mountain of books. Um, but certainly both of them have p- published and written stories that uh, are provable falsities, that they've, they've been made up for the sake of books. Um, and a lot of the Ripper stories do actually come, as I say, from, from those two guys. Now, as a result, you have to question the validity of, of anything that either of them wrote. Um, th- there's plenty of them that, that, that simply don't, don't ring true, or if they do have an element of truth about them, that, then people are mistaken. The, the, the only ghost story t- to do with the Ripper that, that really gets my interest was one that uh, Underwood wrote about in his Jack the Ripper, 100 Years of Mystery, uh, which was published in, was it 88 or 87? It was certainly around the centenary. But he he did uh, recount one tale of uh, a young man who'd been passing the open door of 29 Hanbury Street in the 1950s and he'd heard some kind of commotion coming from the backyard. So he'd actually passed through the corridor, although, of course, I can't see how likely that would be. You'd think he probably wouldn't want to. But nevertheless, he claims that when he got to the backyard, he actually heard uh, the sounds of an attack taking place directly in front of him. He heard swishing noises and thuds against the fence right next to where he was standing, but he didn't see anything. I kind of like that tale. But the others don't, don't seem to have much, much element of truth. Certainly the oldest ghost story to do with, with the Ripper Tales, um, if you don't include the Caroline Maxwell story of claiming to see Mary Kelly uh, after most people presume she was already dead, um, was one that Elliot O'Donnell wrote about, I th- think he wrote about it as early as 1909 it might well have been. Uh, he claimed that when he was a child he'd been around the, the east end of London and he'd said that the locals were speaking about seeing a, a kind of green-gray glowing shape in the gutter where, where Polly Nichols had died. But again, I have a feeling that that may have even been something that was made up by the locals to dissuade people from going around seeing the murder site. Because as we know, they petitioned the council to get Row renamed as Derwood Street because they were sick of ghoulish sightseers. And I just have this feeling that maybe like smugglers used to do with their tales of you know, headless horsemen uh, and, and curses and things, they used to put these stories about to try to stop people going there to scare them off.
1: Hmm. Phil, uh, you mentioned Elliot O'Donnell. He's no relation to Bernard O'Donnell, is he?
2: Not as far as I'm aware. There's certainly people who could set you right on that. Not least of all would be Stuart Evans, who's an O'Donnell expert. Um, I, I'm presuming it may just be a coincidence. Okay.
0: Now, back, back to... Uh, let, let's talk about your book you mentioned earlier. Um, you were able to acquire uh, quite a number of photographs um, from uh, John Gordon Whitby's collection. Um, could you explain t- to us... Um, First of all, how did the idea between, uh, you and Robert Clark? Uh, how did the idea of doing a book come about? And um, and and go into some detail about um, about how you acquired these photographs and how you guys uh, put this great book together. Sure. Um,
2: well, I've I've known Rob first through Casebook and then um, through the, the Whitechapel Society. After that. Um, Rob and I, we, we, you know, we, we've got a lot in common. We, we're of a similar age. We both live in Surrey. Um, slightly similar sense of humour, you could say. And we both have the same interest in the aspects of the Ripper case. Both of us are interested in, in the topography, uh, the locales, the buildings, uh, the history, uh, just as much as we are in the actual case itself. Um, I had a couple of books published before with uh, Tempest Publishing, but the publishing deal I have with them isn't exactly great, and they're published in, in uh, softback covers and things. Um, I always wanted to do a Ripper book of then and now pictures. The, the only other real effort have been P.D. Riley's uh, The Highways and Byways of, of uh, Jack the Ripper, which, if anybody has a copy, will realise it's, it's a great premise, but the results aren't really that rewarding. The, uh, the modern photographs tend to be blurred or askew. The old photographs are poorly reproduced. And I thought uh, it needed something a little more tangible, uh, it wouldn't be just another Ripper book. It would be something different. There's no way I could have put that entire book together by myself. Uh, as I've always said, my interest in the Ripper is not great enough to be able to write a book that most people who are really into the case would look at and say, this guy knows his stuff. So I asked Rob if he'd come on board to kind of halve the workload, knowing that we had a a similar outlook. Um, Rob's research for the book largely... was writing up notes from which I actually wrote the text. Um, I did a little bit of the notes for the text myself, but, but Rob did the majority of, of the notes. And as far as sourcing of uh, materials went, the modern photographs, we took about 50% each, and the old photographs, mine was relying largely upon the collection I've amassed over the years, primarily from from eBay and things like that. And um, Rob's contributions to the old photographs was th- uh, trawling through things like the Metropolitan Archives and the Tower Hamlets uh, Library. And... Um, there's, there's a, a brewery as well, the brewery that was responsible for, for looking after places like the Princess Alice and uh, the two brewers and the frying pan. They had the old archive photographs of them. Uh, so Rob was responsible for getting the photographs from archives for the old ones. I was responsible for getting uh, the, the old photographs uh, from my own personal collection. As far as the, the John Gordon Whitby photographs go, I have a friend called Margaret Green. Uh, she runs the ghost tours in, in Lincoln in the North Midlands of England. And uh, I've known Margaret for years. Obviously, when, you do ghost tour things. You, a lot of people, you do tend to meet up with each other. But Margaret and I have become very good friends over the years. And like I had done for Richard Jones, I actually booked Margaret to speak at the Ghost Club last year. And whilst we were sitting down in the bar, just having a conversation uh, after she'd done the talk, she said, oh, I've got something at home that might interest you, because she knew I was a Jack the Ripper guy. So I, I just found these old photographs in her kitchen drawer. That are, do you want to have a look at them? I said, well, what are they are? He said, oh, my, my uncle took them. My uncle was interested in true crime. He, he he took these photographs. I don't know. It must have been the 60s or something. They're to do with the Jack the Ripper murders. And I well, yes, yes, please. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so uh, within a week, she would posted them to me. Um, they're in one of those modern, cheap uh, little plastic photo albums you know you, you get your photo back from the from the processing and you, you get these little albums that has got space for about 36 shots in here just slide them into the sleeves they're in one of them and it arrived through the post recorded delivery and i walked to work one day ripped open the envelope quite excited about what i was going to see and uh when i started looking through the book from the first photograph my both my hands were tingling and I almost wet myself, and I, I couldn't wait to grab, grab my mobile phone as quick as possible and phone up Stuart Evans and tell him what I had in my hand. Uh, the first shot was actually shot up Commercial Street from Thrall Street, taken in 1961. The second group of shots, which I thought was an amazing coincidence was a load of shots of Swallow's Gardens. Now, some people may be aware that the actual location of the Francis Coles murder had been in dispute for years. A lot of people thought that it was actually Abel's Buildings, which is uh, a, a modern, well, uh, it's, it's still use in, in use today, a modern alleyway uh, near the end of Chamber Street, uh, near towards Lehman Street because that's the only alleyway that still exists now. But it wasn't that at all. We now know Swallows Gardens was now a covered archway at the very end. And I look at these photos, and in 1961, John Gordon Whitby had taken photographs of the absolute correct archway. And I'm wondering how on earth, if we didn't know where the arch was, and it's only been analysis of the maps from detailed researchers like Rob Clack and like John Bennett and like Colin Roberts to find this kind of stuff, how on earth could John Gordon Whitby know? And it's been pointed out to me since that so this was the early 60s. He may well have spoken to people who'd lived there at the time, and they were able to tell him exactly where it happened, which is kind of interesting. Um, so, anyway, so Margaret, Margaret sent me the photographs. So I looked through them. Then, after, straight after the Swallows Gardens photographs, I came to two uh, little paper envelopes with the words Hanbury Street written on it. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The first photograph out was a color shot of the front of number 29 taken in the early 60s. Then behind that were three shots of the backyard taken at the same time. And then there was a second envelope with some small square photographs in it. And it was a sequence of four photographs, three walking through the corridor from the front to the back of 29. And the fourth one taken from the back door looking along the corridor to the front door of you, which I presume had never been seen by anybody before. It was, and it just went on, you know, we then had all these shots of Mitre Square and uh, some kind of unrelated ones, of spittle square and of old Montague Street and uh, shots of Durwood Street from the murder spot looking up and down, up and down the road. And I thought, these, these are gold dust. And the idea, I'd already had the idea of writing the book with Rob. And I th- when those photographs arrived, I thought, we've, we've got to do this book now. This, you know, this is a, a, an amazing find. So I phoned Margaret up straight away, and I said, look, would you be willing to sell them to me? And uh, to my delight, she agreed on the spot to sell them to me, knowing that her uncle would have been absolutely thrilled to have seen these photographs in print. And it's happened, you know. His, his, his photography now is, is in this book that you can, you can buy. His, uh, it's on the back cover of the book. It's on the front cover of the, <laughs> the current issue of Ripper Notes. and They've been used in lectures. Uh, they're going to be used in a, a TV program you know, later on that's this coming uh, this year. Um and I, I think the guy would be absolutely thrilled um, so so Margaret his his niece is thrilled as, as well and and I'm thrilled that she sold them to me.
4: It's a marvelous find Philip and uh how, how many uh photos are there in the collection exactly?
2: Oh you put me on the spot now Robert. Um I th- uh, think it's uh, about I think <laughs> I think it's about 21 photos. They're actually upstairs at the moment. I'm speaking downstairs on the computer so I, I, I could go and get them but uh, that would be a break in the broadcast. I think it's 21 of them. Uh, the, but the, the interesting thing is they're taken at different times. When I first saw them I'd assume they were all taken around the same period but I'm looking at the things now they're not. For example I now know for a fact he went into the back of Hanbury Street on at least two occasions. Because there's a photograph taken out of the back door with some pieces of wood hanging around on the left-hand side of the door. And there's another photograph of the backyard, and those pieces of wood uh, are different pieces. The same goes for shots of Mitre Square, that the flowers in the the flower boxes around the old Keeley and Tong building, uh, the flowers change. And uh, the position of cars in the square change as well. So he'd done this on several occasions. We have one colour photograph, we have... Um, then about half the remaining group are landscape photographs, and then the the rest of the group are square ones. So I don't know how many cameras he had with him, but but we're talking at least two visits, maybe more, to take the photographs he did.
4: And, and, and it, it chance, makes me think. Sorry, go there on. A chance of? Are there a chance of finding any more? Is?
2: Oh, I do. I hope so. I've told Margaret that it's it's you know, vitally important that we could trace some more. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he took other ones which are actually an album somewhere. And one day I'll get a phone call from Margaret saying she's found something else of London, and she'd like me to take a look at it to see if it's actually a ripper site. It would be great if so.
1: It sure would. Phil, has anyone ever made a concerted effort to put advertisements in newspapers requesting that if anyone had photographs of the East End, uh, say around 1900 or even in the latter part of the 19th century uh, to contact you or to anybody in the Whitechapel Society? Because I know that they're, um, they're pretty big into the ph- pho- photography aspect of the uh, case.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've, no, I've no, I've never done that. Um, I, I presume it probably would pay dividends it, to some degree, but I wouldn't think it would be from the people that took the photographs themselves. A lot of the times now the people who took those photographs uh, of the East End before it all started changing, they've now largely died and you will find with the, with the demographic of the East End now that the, the majority yeah, of the people yeah. that used to live there don't live there anymore they're now displaced all, all the way around the rest of the country uh, primarily they'd still be in the London area but now out in the suburbs somewhere um, it's a case of you know, where would you start um, you'd have to kind of go national with such an inquiry and, and the nationals aren't going to be interested in, in somebody coming forward asking a question like that um, th- there's a hope the possibility this exhibition that's coming up at the uh, the Docklands Museum on Jack the Ripper later this year may turn up to New photographs certainly i imagine it's going to get some people visiting who are then going to come forward saying i've got some photographs that might interest you but then they'd end up going to the uh, doptons museum and you know if, if they'd be available to the rest of us is another matter
0: what's the television the- show that you had mentioned that they're going to be used on later this year
2: well um some people remember there was a program on, on channel five last year this is just when uh, the the Identikit picture of Jack the Ripper came out the one looking like Freddie Mercury from Queen and uh, Channel 5 did this this documentary Channel 5 in the UK about the Ripper it's, uh, it's the same director making that um, it's a pilot for a series um, the pilot will definitely be shown it's going to be shown on the History Channel in the States this fall and uh, the, the the working title for it is, is called Being Jack the Ripper um, it's going to be an interesting one I think this is not going to be a standard retelling of the case uh, this is supposed to be Uh, speaking about the London of the Ripper, uh, what the social conditions were like at the time, um, and the lives of the people who lived through the murders, rather than actually concentrating on the case itself. There's going to be a lot of CGI in the programme. I know the day I was filming with them. um, I I probably don't want to give too much away. I'm not bound by any contract, but I think they're trying to keep things under wraps. But certainly they're going to be doing CGI's... uh, of some of the murder locations. They're going to have us you know, speaking about it in front, and they're going to build up the thing and the screen behind us whilst we're doing it. And the idea of that is very
0: exciting. Hmm. Certainly sounds like an exciting one to watch for. All right. uh, Mike, Kevel, and Holt, do you have more questions
3: for Philip? Are there any plans whatsoever um, for a follow-up to the London of JTR then and now? Um...
2: No, not as far as I'm aware. Rob and I would, would never say no to it. I would, I would certainly consider working with Rob again. He, he's a very hard worker, and you ask him to do something, he does it straight away. He's very easy to work with. And it, it, was, it was give and take with a book to, to a large degree. You know, if, if, uh, if one person liked it, um, they wouldn't do it if the other person really didn't like it. And so so, so it, was, it was pretty easy to work with. Um, we did have an idea. There was a rumour going around. Um, I don't think it's a rumour, actually. I think, I think it's been validated that uh, there are other photographs of Hanbury Street, um, but we've not been able to get our hands on those, that they belong to a friend of a friend who's, who's playing a bit silly buggers with it all. Um, but I'd like kind of like the idea of maybe with Dan Norder's Inklings Press of possibly doing a, a small book on... Um, uh, on, on 29 Hanbury Street using every photograph from the Whitby collection and uh, Stuart Evans' photographs, which I'm, I'm sure he'd be, you know, willing to let us use and these other photographs if they should ever turn up. Um, a full-length book. I, I can't really see where else we could go from from here. It would just be a rehash if we did anything else. There's certainly other photographs to use. I didn't use all of them from the Whitby collection by any means. Um, and I know for a fact there's, there's other important photographs that, that um, you know, pe- people will be finding out about in due course. Um... But I can't see how we can make another book on that. There is a possibility if if uh, if the publisher agrees to it, we could actually do a revised version. Like all books, we found some errors in it, not major ones, but ones that make us cringe. Uh, certainly, a thing that both of us are very unhappy with is that the photographs we used from William Stewart's *A New Theory* that we both spent ages on our computers removing all the cartouches from the corners and at removing the outlines of the bodies he put in. Uh, When they turn up in the book, there's very bad what we call cross-hatching on the photographs. Um, There's like, you know, kind of lines and stuff all over the images that shouldn't be there. Um, So we'd like to get that kind of thing corrected. Um, And and a few spelling errors and and a couple of uh, of, of factual errors as well that were really schoolboy errors, to be honest. I think I put Martha Tabram's age down as 37 or something. I have no idea why I did that because I know damn well she was 39.
1: Phil, is there any possibility of finding out when the... The fence at between 29 and 27 Hanbury Street uh, was rebuilt. Oh,
2: Lord, I... I I haven't got a clue. Um, I don't think the ghost fire insurance plans will give you that kind of information. I, mean, I understand that the um, best I can say from my memory is that obviously the one up at the time of the murders was a temporary fence. Then we have the one in, I think it's Harold Furness's famous crimes past and present from 1903. I think they show the fence there as being a totally different one. Uh, you know, one with, with uh, crossboards and then slats with gaps between them which would have been a later fence. Certainly in the 1961 shots, we are back to the kind of fence you'd expect. Uh, um, you know, a fair, fairly tall fence with a load of flats joined together overlapping each other. Uh, but, no, when fences change, I'm afraid I won't have a clue. I brought silence to the proceedings. <laughs>
0: um, okay, um... Now, this book is is available um, on Amazon.com in the UK for uh, US uh, readers, it, and it's yet to have uh, an, an American distributor, or or what, what's what uh, is it the pub- your publishing company doesn't have an American distribution network, or what? Um, um I would think that might be the
2: case. I can speak for them. My, my publisher is is uh, Breeden Book. In, in Derby. Now, they're quite popular uh, in the UK, but they do, do tend to post history books on UK subjects. Consequently, I'd imagine they don't have a distributor in the US. Um, and I know that people in the States have had uh, you know, certain amounts of obtain copies of it. Um, they can order it direct through Breeden Books, uh, both, uh, well, actually on- online from Breeden Books' website. But of course, in the hardback of a couple of hundred pages, it, it's a rather weighty tome and uh, postage costs even in the UK aren't, aren't cheap, so you'd be paying Probably about three-quarters of the price of the book on shipping alone to get it sent to you if you lived abroad okay.
1: mm. but for anyone
4: well, It's well worth it for anyone who who is interested in, in uh, You know what London looked like what the East End looked like then what it looked like now the disappearing London It's it's a fabulous book that adds actually a lot to the case
2: well, thank you, Mr. Lockton. The same can be said for yours. If only you could find a copy. <laughs> uh,
0: true. Now, you. Philip, you're you're um, you're uh, an avid eBay watcher, and you mentioned earlier uh, that you do some collecting on eBay. And I know you do a lot of selling of seventy-eight um, records on eBay. Uh, could you, mm-hmm. you tell us some of the stuff that you've managed to get off of eBay um, that that's added to your uh, true crime collection, just in general? Oh,
2: sure. I've had some fantastic wins on eBay. Perhaps um, some of the Ripper stuff is is maybe not not so great. I mean, possibly one of the most interesting Ripper finds I had on there was uh, a property deed that was signed by a firm of solicitors down in Christchurch in Dorset. And uh, I think people can obviously guess the kind of family that we're talking about here. But uh, it bore the signatures of of Druitt's cousin and uncle. who who were running the firm of solicitors at the time. So that was a kind of, I think that cost me something like five pounds. Um, I've I've had um, other good wins as well. My favorite, I've I've got three really good wins that would grace any wonderful black museum. I have the actual handcuffs that uh, Franz Muller, the railway murderer of 1864, was arrested in. Uh, I have the actual family photographs of John George Haig the acid bath murderer, including the original photograph of uh, him as a choir boy holding a hymn book, which is reproduced in all the books. Uh, they were bought from the estate of his biographer, Arthur LeBurn. Um, and possibly my rarest thing of all is that there, there was a famous uh, London murder case in the 17th century, uh, the, uh, the murder of Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey. Stephen Knight wrote, wrote a book about it as well. And there were three Catholics who were, who were hanged for his murder. turns out they almost certainly didn't do it but I do actually own the actual final written statement of one of the three men that was hanged for his murder uh, the night before he was executed in a condemned cell at Newgate Prison and that's that's quite a beauty
0: and is it a pretty com- competitive um, um, bidding process with other river collectors or do you find that that you're, you can s- uh, skate right through to victory with some of these catches
2: if, if people put something up on eBay correctly if they've Really played on its Ripper connections, then very often you have no chance. There, there's, there's several collectors uh, worldwide who have far deeper pockets than I have, and if their name turns up, you know, it's, it's time to give up. Um, I, I, know, I know all these people. It's, it's like in, in the Ripper fraternity, really. You know, all the authors know each other. It happens with eBay as well. The, the, the Ripper collectors, all, most of them tend to know who each other is.
4: Um, yeah, we, we, we all but, queue up and then somebody gets it because I've lost many items myself, to people like Philip and Thomas Shashner
2: and Christian Yod and others. Yeah, there's there's a uh, Dave Morgie out in uh, Dave McIntyre's his real name out, out in the states as well. He, he's a massive yeah. ripper collector yeah. who, who, uh, who who gets all these massive original things. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, if someone's going to turn up with that kind of money, that, then you know, there's nothing you can do. You can't win everything. It's, in a way, it's good to know that it's still staying within the field. Uh, if, if somebody won something who had really no connection to the case, who wasn't going to share it, it's never be seen again. That's really where my issue lies. Somebody buys stuff and they keep it in a collection and they never share it. Um, I deem those people as destroying history because they're putting things in a private archive. It's not going to be accessible to everybody else. and that, I have an issue with that. Um, of course, of course, they're entitled to do it. They, they paid for it. It's theirs. But morally, I, I think it's wrong. I think when people get these things, for the time they have them, they have a moral responsibility to eventually use them.
4: And I have a slightly related question to that, Philip. Um, uh, some people in the past have suggested uh, um, a Jack the Ripper repository where we can put things associated with the Ripper case in the East and sort of pool our resources. What's your idea on something like that? Is it feasible? I think it
2: would be great, but um, I can't ever see a Jet Ripper Museum happening. There's such animosity to the Ripper case from, from the locals in the East, and if they did it, it would have to be somewhere else. Now, we've had the Ripper, uh, the Ripper area at Madame Tussauds. We've got the Ripper section in the London dungeon now. We'll have the Museum of Docklands exhibition coming up, which in itself is a major achievement, being, being where it is and being a, a serious uh, study of it. Um, a repository of it, as far as I'm concerned, the, the only uh, real official Ripper repository in the world is the study of Mr. Stuart P. Evans. And I think everybody deems it as such as well. Um, I, I, can't, I can't see it would ever happen. I, 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 no, I, I, don't, I don't think it would occur. I think these things are always going to remain in private collections.
0: And you've been uh, very generous in sharing your photographs. So I, when I introduced you in this show, I, I referred to you as a photographer as well as everything else, um, and you have a Flickr account, and you've uploaded um, over 1,600 photographs that you've taken. <laughs> all uh, of me! <laughs> <laughs> <In Iceland. laughs> Actually, only a very few of you, uh, but uh, a, a lot of uh, photographs of the East End, a lot of photographs of uh, Iceland in particular, I loved all of those photographs, and um, and you're very generous in sharing... Um, all, all of all of your personal photographs that you that you've taken of the area and, and and places you've traveled to, and I encourage everyone to check out um, Philip's Flickr account page. It's just some amazing pictures. And he has good taste in music too. I'm at it. So <laughs> Thank
2: you. This isn't done through any sense of benevolence. You understand? It's done trying to be a show off. Always
0: <laughs> <laughs> here, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, on New Year's Eve with the fireworks
2: I mean, oh that was amazing. that was crazy that's yeah that's a dangerous place all the locals go out wearing goggles and it's only the tourists that are in danger of injury and it does happen people do get injured there each night everyone's just letting off fireworks all around themselves it's it's a it was bizarre it started getting really dangerous
0: <laughs> <laughs> well alright uh, do we have some uh, final uh, questions for Philip while we have him here
3: we're just at an hour I'd like to ask one final one are there any plans to release the London of JTR then and now in a different form of media, i.e. as a DVD? we I hadn't
2: even thought of that. There could be an issue to the extent that we actually had to pay various archives for use of the images in the book. And consequently, I don't know if the reproduction of that in another format would be covered by the, the sums of money we've paid. Um... Certainly, a great deal of the photographs we have—I mean, are, are pretty much available. If, if somebody approaches either Rob or me asking for an image, then you know we'd always send it to them. Um, some of them are still under copyright. For example, the Whitby collection—I'm happy to show anybody the images of it. But if they wanted to use them in any way, then you know I'd need some kind of written undertaking of what they're going to be used for. Uh, that's also because uh, my friend Margaret—she um, she still wants to be kept abreast of any developments with the photographs. She wants to know when they're being used, which is fair enough. Um, we no, we haven't considered doing anything else. You, you could kind of do a DVD of it, I suppose, or a multimedia inter- interactive you know, computer disk. Uh, um, but again, we, we have this issue that I don't know if we'd actually be able to get clearance to use some of the images that we've used in the book, because we'd probably have to pay a, a usage fee all over again.
0: Yeah. And is that it, everybody? Howard, you have any last things you want to say, or Robert? Um, I'm satisfied over here. Okay.
4: <laughs> mm. yeah. And and Robert in Edmonton. No, it's it's been a great conversation with Philip, and it it's nice to have him back sometime.
0: It it certainly yeah. has. It's been a great pleasure well, having you on, well,
4: yeah, Philip. Yeah. I I, I've shocked myself at how erudite
2: I've been. I thought I'd be mumbling and ahhing not giving c- 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 cohesive answers, but I seem to have done okay. Well done, uh, me.
0: Uh, <laughs> you, you've, you've, done one, you've done wonderful. Believe me. <laughs> and 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 so that's the uh, wrap of rippercast our special guest today coming to us from Guildford, surrey in the uk is was philip hutchison thank you again for being on today pleasure and, and we had mike Covell in hole in the uk um, and also howard brown as always philadelphia pennsylvania we'll see you next week howard we'll do And in Edmonton, in Alberta, Canada, Robert McLaughlin. It's a pleasure as always, guys. And our podcast is available to download at www.rippernet.com. And you can uh, click the podcast section and get this episode and the prior four episodes. Otherwise, you're stuck with streaming anything past the fifth episode. Uh, Or email me um, or private message me. You'll know where to find me. And I can also give you a link to the feed to where you can download um, the MP3 on your desktop. Or if you click the subscribe button on the webpage, you can get it downloaded directly to your iTunes Music application. And I want to thank everybody again for making a great podcast. And we'll see you next week.
3: Está